If your Bible this morning, I'd love for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 12. As we continue our series, the church has left the building, looking at uh, the church in the, the early church in the book of Acts and how they were given this mission of carrying out the, the good news of Jesus, spreading that throughout the world around them. And likewise, we have the same mission, though many years have passed, millennia have passed. Uh, we are also called to continue the work of carrying out the good news of Jesus to the world around us. Now, I've told some of you, I've mentioned to some of you, you've asked more about me and different hobbies and things like that, uh, that one of my hobbies is, is woodworking. And I had a lot more time for hobbies before uh, my children were born, but as ironically, becoming a dad was uh, the inspiration, became one of my biggest projects that I've ever built, uh, which when Chandler was uh, almost born, um, we knew we were expecting him, I built a changing table that would eventually double as a, a small dresser. And uh, through this whole process, you know, everything, I really like how it turned out, but it wasn't without its, its issues along the way. Uh, when I first started, everything was going fine, and, and I'd built the frame and the boxes and the, the drawer boxes and the drawer fronts and the slides and, and everything, basically all everything I could do before I got to the cabinet door. The cabinet door was the part I was most worried about. It was an inset door, which means it has to sit in a specific space. There's no room for overlap, and so I had to be you know, really precisely cut. I had never done anything that big to that point, but it got to the point where I couldn't ignore the cabinet door any longer, and so uh, pep talk from my wife, you know, it looks so great, you can do it, it's going to be great. And so I put the piece of plywood on the, the table saw, and I cut it down to size, and for one very brief moment in time, it was perfect. Until I dropped it right on the edge on the moving table saw blade. <laughs> and so as we come before Acts chapter 12 this morning, this comes to mind because I think Acts 12 is kind of the cabinet door edge experience of the book of Acts. Throughout the last several chapters as we've gone through this story, everything has been going fairly well for the early church. Aside from the martyrdom of Stephen in chapter 7, everything since that point has been going smoothly and the church has been celebrating one victory after another. We've seen, the, as Jesus said in chapter 1, we've seen his word and in, in, in the gospel move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's continuing to unfold just as Jesus had called the church to do. We saw a few weeks ago Philip kind of break past this wall of, of prejudice to proclaim the gospel to the Samaritans and to the Ethiopian eunuch. We saw the church persecutor Saul move from, from persecuting the church with, with a face-to-face -face encounter with the resurrected Jesus, move from persecution to kind of championing the church. We saw last week how God has made clear to Peter and, and to the whole church and even to us now that that there's no one outside the bounds of his grace. That even Gentiles could receive in Christ the, this, the, the message of the good news. They could receive his salvation. We saw that in the story of the centurion Cornelius that we looked at last week. And Luke is about to describe this great leap forward, as we'll see in the next couple of chapters, of the first missionary journey as Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas begin to take the word of the gospel further and further. I mean, the word of God is just spreading in wave after wave after wave. But then this morning, Acts chapter 12 must have been a dramatic setback. The dropping of the cabinet door on the blade of the table saw, if you will. And it starts with a man named Herod. Now, you probably have heard of Herod before if you've studied much in the New Testament. But there are actually more than one Herod. There's many Herods that we see in the gospel in the book of Acts. We see this morning the Herod that we're looking at is Herod Agrippa I. 
He was the grandson of Herod the Great, which is the king that killed the baby boys in Bethlehem as Jesus was being born. And he's the nephew of Herod Antipas, who is the Herod that beheaded John the Baptist, as we see in the Gospels, and also the one whom Jesus was brought to before in his trial. I know you're thinking with these, you know, kind of resume, you know, nice family, but uh, Herod Agrippa I is kind of the, the classic politician. He's the most popular Herod among the people because he did everything in his power to appeal to their favor. And whatever Jewish party was ruling and reigning at the time, uh, he was good friends with the emperor. He was a strict follower of Jewish practices. He frequented the temple. I mean, he did everything right in the eyes of the people. And now as his latest political stance, he's latched on to the latest enemy of the Jewish rulers, the church. And so it's with some solemnness that we read in Acts chapter 12 this morning. Verse 1, it says, it was, about, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Herod, simply because it was politically expedient to begin persecuting Christians, has James, the brother of John, beheaded. And because it would please the Jewish people so much, he has the same fate planned for Peter as soon as the Passover is over. As soon as the holiday is over, he can get back to the business of persecuting the church. As I read this, I read verse 2, and I just imagine how much emotion must have been felt in just writing those 13 words. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. It's easy to read that statement as just a, a statement of historical fact and move on, but imagine the pain and imagine the heartbreak of the early church. James, one of the twelve apostles leading the church, the brother of John, one of the inner three of Jesus' disciples in the Gospels, one of the, the sons of thunder that Jesus had called to follow him to be a, a fisher of men, is suddenly gone executed as a power play for a tyrannical ruler. To put it in our context, it would be like, you know, the city council coming in and, and carting off one of our elders, you know, Tom Jeffers, and, and lopping off his head, and, and everybody in Lake County is so happy about it. You know, sorry, Tom, I think he's watching online this morning, but uh, everybody's so happy they come in, and they, they grab Ed as well, and they put him in prison. And so all of this goes into the question that I really want to look at this morning, of what does the church do? When, when unjust tragedy and persecution shakes it to its core. Because this isn't just something that we look at this morning as a text for the ancients, but it's a lesson still for us today. You don't have to look much further than the headlines of newspapers or your, your Facebook news feed or, or the browser explorer section on Twitter to see that we are living in a culture that is not only antagonistic toward the church, but also rife with tragedy-inflicting animosity toward it. We hear and read of church shootings, that people being killed in houses of worship. In other parts of the world, we hear of Christians who are tortured and burned and killed, men, women, and children, it doesn't matter. We see in our culture this continuing and strengthening social pressure against the church to compromise the truth or face the consequences. 
Our, our country and our culture is headed down a path where churches are being seen in less and less favorable light. And Christians are facing restrictions and their liberties and more and more opportunities for persecution. And so again, the question of what does the church do when the unjust tragedy of persecution shakes it to its core? And not only do we want to answer that question this morning, but I want to look at a few examples of the early church in a moment like this in Acts chapter 12 that not only offers answers, but offer us encouragement as the church of today. And the first is this, that when we face persecution, when we face tragedy as the church, because of our testimony about Jesus, we first recognize that the church will suffer. We recognize that the church will suffer. In Acts chapter 12, we see this world that though the names and dates might be different, the situations are very much the same as what we might face as the church today and what many of our brothers and sisters around the world do face today. We see politicians that cater to the whims of public pressure and a world that rejoices when the church suffers. And often this comes as a surprise, but it shouldn't. Jesus in the Gospels warns his followers of this in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, then it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. We look at this and we think, no, Jesus, you wrote that for then, but this is now, and we live in America, and we were built on Judeo-Christian principles and this ethic. We have the upper hand. We, we, people look up to us. You know, who would hate us in our culture? But our culture is changing. We think we should live in an Acts 2.47 world, but we don't. Acts 2.47 tells us the church was enjoying the favor of all the people. But that was then, and by the time that we get to Acts chapter 12, a decade has passed, and with it, much of that favor has passed as well. Verse 3 of chapter 12, Luke tells us that when James was executed, it was met with approval among the Jews. Verse 11, we'll get to in a minute, says that when Peter was rescued from Herod's clutches, everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. You see, this is not a culture in which the church is still continuing to find favor. But because of its testimony about Jesus, is continuing to face more and more opposition, more and more persecution. The church that once found itself enjoying the favor of all the people is now finding itself as an object of its destructive hopes. And I don't say this this morning to be doom and gloom or, or, or to, to proclaim the sky is falling, but to arm ourselves with the reality that those that we are trying to save so often also desire our destruction. In other words, as we go on this mission to rescue hostages, they often arm themselves with the same animosity of the enemy. And so as we seek to leave the building and to rush into this world that needs to hear about the name of Jesus, we will encounter opposition, we will suffer, but that shouldn't surprise us. Yes, we should long for peace and security and freedom to worship absolutely, but if we find ourselves unable to be the church without that peace and without that security and without that freedom, then maybe we need to better evaluate what the church is called to be. Let me say that again. As we go out into this world, as we hope for peace and security and freedom and all the things that make it easy to worship, those things are great and wonderful and we should absolutely pray for them. But if we find ourselves unable to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our world without those, then we have missed what we are called to be as a church. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12 that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so our response to this persecution, our response to the opposition that we face, 
is to devote ourselves to earnest prayer. It's the second encouragement that we see from the early church, to devote ourselves to earnest prayer. You see, Herod, as he sets out uh, on this mission to please his constituents, to please the people around him, he doesn't want to take any chances with Peter. He puts 16 guards on him, four with him at all times. Peter handcuffed to two of them, while two stand sentry outside. I mean, this is a maximum security situation. I have to kind of smirk a little bit when I read about this, because I can't help but think that Herod would have heard the rumors of when Peter and John were in prison in chapter 5. And while he probably didn't believe that an angel let them out back then, he asked to make sure this time that nothing would happen, that Peter would not escape. And lo and behold, he still does. He just had to hold on for a, a few days when he put this little show of trial on and get rid of Peter just as he did James. But we see in response, the church is doing something in the background. They're earnestly devoting themselves to prayer. Again, verse 5 says, So when Peter was kept in prison, the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was trying to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant, girl named, a servant named Rhoda came to the door to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him, he did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. In a situation like this, I think, despite all of the detail here, it's important to note not just what the church did do, but to know also what they didn't do. They didn't write to their congressmen. They didn't storm the prison with weapons in hand. They didn't try to, to force the situation. They didn't, but they also didn't sit by passively. The church, in response, prayed. Prayer is the greatest weapon at the church's disposal against opposition and persecution. But I think when we pray, it's how we pray that often determines its effectiveness. This word that's used here, this, this word earnest, or this phrase earnestly praying, in other places means to stretch out, as in a muscle being flexed. This prayer was intense. It was a workout for their faith. This was not a, a, a mild prayer before you fall asleep. This was a prayer that they devoted themselves to fully. And I can't help but ask, what if we prayed like that? What if we prayed as if someone was listening? What if we prayed as if something would happen? What if we prayed as if something was really at stake? 
We prayed with mission and passion and purpose that we prayed not just to pass the time, but to converse with the God of heaven. What if we prayed and expected God to truly act? Heard of a story of a, a small town that historically had been a dry town, meaning they didn't serve alcohol within their city limits, but a local businessman decided to build a bar. And so a group of Christians were a little concerned from local church, and so they began to pray, seeking God's counsel about what to do in this situation. And it just so happened that shortly thereafter, lightning struck the bar and it burned to the ground. Well, the owner of the bar sued the church, claiming that the prayers of the congregation were responsible for the calamity. But the church hired a lawyer to defend themselves, saying it wasn't their fault, they weren't responsible. My favorite part, the presiding judge, after his initial review of the case, stated, regardless of how this case turns out, one thing is clear. The bar owner believes in prayer, and the church does not. When we pray, do we expect God to really act? I look at Peter, and I can't help but think that he expected to be delivered. Whether that meant being delivered through the the prison, being delivered into the arms of Jesus through his death, or delivered from the tragedy. Earnest prayers of the church gave him peace. I think while many in Peter's situation would be up all night worrying themselves into a frenzy, we see Peter falls asleep. It says, in fact, to get him awake that the angel had to strike him on the side. This wasn't a light sleep. This wasn't a shake or or a gentle nudge that could arouse him. He had to be hit so that he would wake up. He was so peacefully asleep. But it seems like while Peter expected God to act, the church did not. This poor servant girl, Rhoda, goes to answer the door and she finds out their prayers have been answered and everybody thinks she's crazy. The church was praying for God to act and for God to intervene, but when he did, they were extremely surprised. When we pray for God to act, but we think it's crazy when he does. When we pray for revival in the world around us, we pray for justice to happen, for intervention to occur, for boldness to be in place. Will we pray for marriages to be saved or for bodies to be healed? Will we be surprised when God responds to those prayers? But I also think it's worth bearing the question and asking the question, what do we do when God doesn't answer every prayer in the way that we expect? Because the fact of the matter is that James died and Peter didn't, and I'm sure the church was earnestly praying for both of them. So what do we do when we expect God to act? but he doesn't act in the way that we expect. The last encouragement we see is the answer to that question, that we rest assured that the church will not be stopped. For many, this day in Acts chapter 12 must have seemed like a death blow to the church. James had been executed. Peter had been captured. Herod was on this destructive warpath against the church. But God was about to make something very clear to the church and to its enemies. A lesson that I think Peter learned through this experience. Later in his own letter, Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We finish the story, verse 19. It says, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted and personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. 
But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. You see, the church had suffered a setback, but it would not be stopped. Noted theologian John Stott, John Stott says the chapter opens with Peter dead, John, James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. You see, the man who had dominated the beginning of this chapter, who had had the power of an empire at his disposal, in the end, in the end is dead and consumed by worms. But the word of God continues to spread and flourish. The church continues to spread and flourish. The mission that Jesus gave them in the very first chapter continues on and on. I think this is some of the most hopeful words in the entire book of Acts. Not just for the church then, but for the church of today. Because for over 2,000 years, civilizations and empires, rulers and governments have tried to put an end to this Jesus movement, yet the word of God continues to spread and flourish. Can I get an amen? You guys are way more noisy than first service. I like that. <laughs> See, the reason I think this is, is because it's how the movement started to begin with. When they hung Jesus on a cross and they buried him in a tomb, and they thought that was the end of it, this thing was over. But three days later, they found that the word of God, the living word, Jesus Christ lived and his word would continue to spread and flourish and that his movement, his people, the church would never be stopped. And as long as we stay true to his word, as long as we stay true to his mission, the church cannot be stopped. Its message will spread and flourish. The impact of the church will spread and flourish. The love of the church will spread and flourish. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, will you allow the word of God to spread and flourish in you and through you? Will you read it and obey it and trust it and proclaim it? Because I think out of some of the greatest oppositions we see, the church can have its strongest moments of influence. The light shines brightest in the deepest darkness, and out of the greatest opposition, the church can have its strongest moments of influence. This is what we'll see as chapter 12 comes to a close. In many ways, the book of Acts is just getting started again, as this mission that we, the church has been given, this movement that started, will continue to bring Jesus to the ends of the earth. And as chapter 12 closes, the winds of change are whipping at the sails that will carry the gospel on through the mission all over the world. And in the same way as the winds of change happen in our culture, in many ways against us, will we use those winds to push forward with renewed passion to bring the mission of salvation and peace and hope and love to the world around us? Will the message continue to spread and flourish through us? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. And we look at our world around us and we see, we see opposition to the church, especially amongst our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. that They face persecution. They face hardship. They face tragedy because of their testimony about you. And likewise, we see our culture in many ways, the tides of favor turning against the church. But God, let us not despair in this. Let us rejoice in this as your word calls us to do because we have been identified with you. And just as they persecuted you, we are called blessed when we are persecuted for your sake. 
Jesus, I pray that as we continue to seek to be the church that leaves this building, that puts hands and feet to our faith, that we would not be discouraged when we encounter opposition, but we would be encouraged because it's these moments of greatest opposition that we can have our strongest influence. Yes, things are hard and persecution is tough to endure, but God, we see throughout history that often the church is at its greatest when the world is at its worst. And no more of a time is our mission of greater consequence than when the world is against us. When those that we are seeking to rescue shoot back at us, God, we know that you can do great things through us. And so, God, we pray for great things. We pray that your word would continue to spread and flourish through us and through our world because of our testimony. So embolden us and empower us through the power of your spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, to carry out his name into our world, to see others come to know him and his peace, his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his hope. We pray this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen.